Hello and welcome to another episode of Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach film and English literature at McEwen University. And the following is a lecture that I gave my students in the winter of 2021 in a course on 100 Years of Horror. We've traveled all the way from the 1920s with Murnau and Grau's Nosferatu all the way up to the 2010s. And we've arrived at David Robert Mitchell's uh, nightmarish horror film, unlike, I think in many ways, and yet like, in a whole bunch of others, any of the films we've seen so far. It follows... Earlier in the course, I had said that I found the 1970s a really difficult decade to decide on just one film, which is why we ended up doing two. I think it's one of the greatest decades for horror in the 100 years uh, since Nosferatu. Um, But I also think that uh, the more recent decade has been uh, really prolific for some absolutely fabulous uh, horror films. Joshua Grimm, who wrote The Devil's Advocate's book for It Follows, says that between 2000 and 2013... 24 movies made the Rotten Tomatoes Top 100 rated horror films. However, since 2014, so in the first instance, we have 13 years. Uh, Grimm wrote his book in 2018, I believe. And so we got, you know, the difference between 13 years and four years. And in the first 13 years, 24 movies making that list. Since 2014, a whopping 20. And there are a few more that have made the list since. From those films, uh, there were a few strong contenders for inclusion in the course. Uh, The wonderful, amazing, um, lovely meditation upon grief, the Babadook. Um, uh, Just an absolute bananas uh, thriller horror, uh, Green Room. Um, which is, you know, about a punk band that goes to a neo-Nazi camp and witnesses a murder and then uh, catastrophe ensues. I, don't, I, I hate giving spoilers. I hate giving spoilers for really old movies, let alone films that even aren't all, all that old. Um, the Korean zombie film, Train to Busan, which for my money is one of the best zombie films ever. And then more recently, um, Hereditary, a movie that did not, um, you know, that Joshua Grimm wouldn't have been writing about when he wrote his It Follows book, but uh, is a film that, you know, came out in, in the meantime. Um, and, but I hadn't watched Hereditary until I was working on the course. Uh, otherwise, there's a really good chance it would have ended up uh, in the mix instead of the film that I chose. But as I worked on this lecture, I, I kept thinking, nope, nope, there's lots of good reasons why It Follows, by uh, directed by David Robert Mitchell, based on a concept by him. Uh, this is really his movie in so many ways. Um, it Follows is, is the movie that, uh, for me, is representative of the best from uh, this last decade, from 2010. And some people might be like, wait a second, what about Get Out? I teach Get Out in another course, so if you want to hear me talk about Get Out, 
you still can. Uh, you can go through the YouTube channel or through the, the podcast uh, episodes and you can find a discussion on uh, Get Out. So it's not that I'm not teaching that film, I'm just not teaching it in this course. Uh, but I chose It Follows because I think it does so many great things as a horror movie. There's, there's subtext, right? Um, as Grimm says, on the face of it, the plot of It Follows could be a metaphor for sexually transmitted diseases or a cautionary tale about teenage intercourse. And I mean, you just look at the paratext for the film, you look at the poster and we're seeing the scene where Jay and Hugh um, are, you know, having sex in his car. And so there's no way to get around the film's use of uh, sexuality, of um, teenage sex, of um, image, really, there's no way around it saying rape imagery. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it utilizes rape imagery at several points in the film to generate, uh, its sense of horror. And as such is, I think, all the more disturbing for it. But I, I think it would be a mistake. And in this particular case, I am one, I am actually on the same page as the director, David Robert Mitchell has said, yes, I've read the, you know, STD, STI, um, metaphor concept for how to read this film. And certainly that's, that's in there. You, you can't miss it as a motif, but do we want to necessarily say that it's the core theme when the, a good chunk of the movie features these teenagers talking about sex in very positive and somewhat casual ways. I don't know that we could say that this film really frames the sex act as a horrific or negative or terrible thing in the same way that some horror theorists and, you know, even within the diegesis of films like Scream, um, uh, the popularization of the idea that, you know, if you have sex in a horror movie, you're going to die, um, which isn't, you know, as, as common as we might think. Um, but, but is this film really uh, sex negative, we might say? Is it saying, like, don't ever have sex? Is that really the message of It Follows, or is it doing something else? I mean, we've got that, you know, really, really wonderful scene where um, Jay and and, and Paul are sitting on the couch and they're, they're reminiscing about their first kiss and they're remembering that time they found a bunch of dirty magazines and then they had to get the sex talk. And so, yeah, sex is definitely a major motif in this film. Uh, we could even go so far as to say it is a theme, but I would hesitate to try to allegorize the entire film through that lens. I would hesitate to do so because I don't think it's the only thing that the film talks about. And as I say, I think it, it, it looks at sex and sexuality in ways that don't necessarily, they aren't sort of wagging a finger and going, shame on you. You know, when Jay comes up um, into the uh, attic at uh, Hughes' hideaway um and paul's sitting there looking through you know the the movie's version of a playboy magazine playpen magazine um i the first time i saw it i thought oh he's gonna he's gonna go ooh, and he's gonna feel all awkward and they're gonna they're gonna have a weird moment no she walks in she sees him looking at him it's no big deal so there's there is a way in which these teens are are sort of you know woke in a in a 21st century way they're sex positive um this is not the conservatism conservatism of 1980s slasher films 
never mind that this movie isn't just about sex. It's also about growing up in so many other ways. I mean, sharing a moment on a couch talking about a first kiss in a movie that takes its time with its camera work to linger on hopscotch, you know, chalk, chalk hopscotch uh, um, squares and, and chalk drawings on the sidewalk in front of um, Jay's house before coming in to see what she is doing. Her swimming in an above-ground swimming pool. I mean, when is an above-ground swimming pool fun? <laughs> when you're a kid. You really can't do much with it once you hit adolescence and you get a growth, hit a growth spurt because once you're a certain height, it's it's all right. I mean, you can go cool off in one. I mean, that's really all we ever see her doing in the pool is, you know, floating, kind of just enjoying the water. Um, but the but the pool as, a, as an instance of mise-en-scene is a, a way of conveying to some degree um, that, you know, this is, this is a moment from childhood uh, and she's she's all grown up. Right. So, you know, this is this is not just a movie about sex, but perhaps sex is part of how this movie is about growing up and coming of age. I mean, where does Jay flee to when she rides down the street and uh, she's on a she's on a BMX bike that's arguably too small for her and she she sidles up to these. Uh, swings the swing set right where when when do you go to you know to the swings in the way um that that jay does in this scene and you're a child right so there's over and over again a strong sense of being young being childlike being innocent um and so i think maybe the 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 inclusion of uh sexuality in this film is i mean as I say, it's absolutely there as a motif, as a theme, in the sense of, you know, passing the curse along. Obviously, we can go, oh, that's like, that's like STDs, that's like STIs. Yes, there's rape imagery. Is this film just about those things? No, I don't think so. Um, I think about it, I think it's about, uh, you know, growing up. But in being about growing up, it's also potentially about growing old. I mean, Hugh's choice uh, when Jay and he are playing this game of who would you trade lives with, and Hugh, who's only 21, according to Jay, uh, points at this little boy. says he's got his whole life ahead of him. Why? Because Hugh knows his time is short. If he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't pass this along, then it, the entity, as, um, as uh, Joshua Grimm calls it in his devil's advocates book i think it's a great term rather than saying it you can't keep using a pronoun if you use a proper sort of noun so the entity is following him and he knows it and so he feels his mortality and and once jay has it she sure feels her mortality and again we look to the mise-en-scene and wonder if this will support this this is something that uh joshua Grimm talks about quite a bit in his devil's advocates book which i'm going to just stop for a moment here and just say, I highly recommend, and I'm not going to address one of the things that I think uh, Grimm talks about, he talks about in his book that I think is really great. Uh, and it's a shift from final girl to a concept that he calls only girl. And I'm not going to say any more about that because I want you to buy Joshua Grimm's It Follows uh, book. I, I don't get any kickbacks for that. 
So it's just me saying I think it's great. It's a great read of the film, um, and I'm borrowing some of his ideas. Uh, so there's my big citation. Um, but the he talks about how the mise en scène includes this scene on the porch with these teens playing old maid, and they're playing with these really old vintage cards. It's a really bizarre film in terms of its mise en scène because when does this take place? We don't know. Um, there's there's elements that are absolutely vintage and then there's uh, other elements that seem very 21st century and sort of sort of has this non-time to it um but uh the the inclusion of old maid and the fact that the old maid is central in kelly's hand as she's contemplating which card to play uh is an interesting moment of of, of mise-en-scene um and but we wouldn't want to take this too far, and this I guess is where I I, I want to I want to be cautionary, or maybe that's really everything that I want to talk about today, um, is that when we get hung up on what a film means, sometimes we miss our way to seeing why it worked for us in in an emotional way, um, because a film can be meaningful, but we don't necessarily pick up on that in our first watching, and I was scared of it follows the first time through. Like The Ring, it made an impact on me that was just the frisson of fear, right? I felt like, you know, to use Julian Hainich's schema, there is a lot of dread in this movie. And then there is also a um, unrelenting terror because it is always, the thing, the entity is always following, is always following Jay. And even though we don't always see it in hot pursuit, in fact, we never really do because it doesn't run. It just walks after you. Uh, we still feel this this constant mix of dread and terror. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about why that happens, how that happens. And that, to me, is not necessarily more interesting than us picking out motifs and themes and saying, oh, I think this film is really about this or it's really about this other thing. Um, because when we get into those sorts of... Um, those that that sort of allegorizing, then I think that we can take us a, a shot like the one of the entity as Jay's father clutching her ankle, as though this is a movie about letting go of dead family. Like, does she just need to get over her grief kind of idea? But that's not what this movie's been about. We don't have a bunch of scenes where Jay is sitting around missing her father. I mean, that's part of the film. It's in there in the subtext. It's there in the mise-en-scene because we see, you know, when her mom is is uh, rubbing her back in one of the scenes right after she's escaped the pool, we can see this picture frame in the background. It shows us that, that that's who the entity was in the pool and that this is who they've lost. And we understand her mother's behavior throughout the film. We understand some comments that other people have made. And we get what's going on there. But is this a film about grief, like, say, The Babadook? Not really, no. I mean, that that's there. It's it's in the wings. It follows. Um, but it, it's, not the, it's not the thrust of the film. It's not the core. And Grimm, Joshua Grimm, in his It, it Follows book, says something that I, I just, I have to flat out disagree with. Um, because, uh, you know, I, he says uh, the best horror films are saying something more. Something more. Be it complicated gender politics, nationwide policy decisions, reactions to a significant event, or simply exploring an issue that deserves more attention. The best horror films are saying something more. Well, let's jump back to the STD, um, rape, sexual stuff, 
And I will remind those of you who ever saw it of the film with Natasha Henstridge in it called Species. Not a great movie. And not really a great commentary on any of these issues necessarily. I mean, it's not a terrible movie. It's kind of fun. Um, But not great. Night of Something Strange it's a B-movie addressing these issues. And so I don't think we can say that just because we've included some deep philosophical or topical or, you know, whatever you want to say, mythological, literary allusions that we can guarantee that we've made a good horror movie. You might have made a really meaningful film, but you haven't necessarily made a great horror movie. And this course has always, like, this is all about what makes this film scary. And you know, the way that, that, that it follows is scary is remarkable because this film utilizes, and it's an incredibly low budget movie. This film utilizes rack focus and a young soccer player to terrify you in one scene, right? Like they're, they're all sitting around and then somebody approaches in the background. And every time this happens, once we know what the rules of this movie are, that this entity will follow her and it will never stop. But it's not like the Terminator. It's not going to start running after you. It's just going to walk after you. It's just going to come very slowly. And what that means is that this film's cinematography alone is terrifying. And that to me is brilliant. That's brilliant filmmaking. It is using the medium at hand rather than saying, what would be a scary story? It's how would we film this scary story? And so in this lecture, really, I'm I'm taking Andrew Tudor's idea of, you know, why this horror at this time, blah, 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 and sort of twisting that a little bit and saying, how did David Robert Mitchell take this concept, which was apparently uh, a, a long-running nightmare for him. It's one of the first things Joshua Grimm talks about in his book. He says, around the age of 10, director Robert David Robert Mitchell had a recurring nightmare of being slowly followed by something that could adopt multiple identities. Regardless of how many times he escaped, no matter how often he evaded capture, it just kept following. So, wonderful nightmare logic. Again, I think really some of the greatest modern horror films operate on nightmare logic. Um, If you've ever tried to relate a nightmare or a dream to somebody else, you're constantly saying... Um, and then this happened and I don't know why, I don't know why we were, I don't know what I did. I don't know why we were. And there's that same kind of, you know, when I say dream logic or nightmare logic, it's really no logic at all because the concept here falls apart. If we pick at it too much, it just doesn't, there's there's an aspect, there are aspects of it that, that don't make sense. Um, but you don't want to follow that down that, that, that rabbit hole because, is that really is that really how you know we come to a horror movie as a sympathetic viewer but david robert mitchell takes this concept of something following you everywhere and turning into other people and instead of giving us cgi transformation sequences which is let's face it a, a a really big budget version of this concept certainly could have been rendered in that way like not prosthetic cuz we don't do prosthetic that much anymore unless it was Guillermo del Toro make, del Toro making the movie in which case then maybe but you know, we don't get those crazy transformation sequences. In fact, the amount of digital um, effects in this film is very, very, very scant. Very scant. And and when it's used, it's used to great effect. But most of the scares are generated by slow-moving cameras and focus. And that, to me, is remarkable because it's really, in that way, is a very cinematic narrative is very cinematic all we have to do is is take a look and i'm, I'm going to unpack a few things in this in this sequence uh at when um the entity first reveals itself 
to, or not reveals itself, but Jay first sees it outside her college classroom. And I want to talk about this at the same time that I reference Thomas M. Sipos in conversation uh, with Joshua Grimm. Um, so Grimm basically says that he thinks that um, It Follows works off of uh, several really common um, horror, horror monster types. Um, and, and Thomas M. Sipos working with David, uh, David Skull's um, breakdown of like, these are the, the great sort of, um, spaces or, or locations of, of horror says that all of horrors unnatural threats fall under one of three categories, the supernatural, the monsters of nature and science and the human psyche's dark side. And and incidentally, that was one of the things that was in my head when I was choosing, um, films for this course, I, I broke down, I was like, okay, do how many supernatural films do I have? How many science monsters do I have? And how many sort of slash or human monsters do I have? And I tried to have a decent balance of all of them because I didn't want to have like, I'm, I, my, my, my bread and butter is supernatural horror, even though my favorite monster movie, my favorite horror movie is the thing, which is really a monster of nature and science. Cause it's, it's an alien. Um, I'm, I would have skewed the course heavily in the direction of the supernatural if I hadn't broken it down in this way, using Skull and using Seapost. And then coming to Grimm, he's like, okay, this film uses... He, he basically says the same... He basically gets in a conversation with Seapost in a way where he's like, oh, well, this film uses all three of these. He doesn't say it in that way. He doesn't he doesn't quote Seapost. Um, but he, that's exactly what I thought of as soon as, as, soon as I read uh, Grimm's words about this. So this this revelation of the entity uh, gives us a few nods to this and we can we can uh, we can see how this the entity is all of the monsters and that's another reason that I wanted to once I decided like it's in the course and then I read Grimm's book and I'm like it's staying in the course because of this very thing that it sort of acts as a bookend in some ways that it's like this uh, you know a uh, great amalgam of so many uh, features of other horror movies that we've watched. But really, horror as a genre, it just does that. Because unlike, um, like, liter- literature, real literature, uh, there was a point at which, like, um, you know, modernist writers were trying everything they could to not engage with um, the conventions and and even the language conventions, conventional language like collocations and cliches, uh, trying to avoid all of those things to create utterly new works. And in some cases, uh, when they were successful, they created uh, narratives that were almost unreadable because we rely on collocations and cliches, conventions, things that we've seen before, like horror cliches and horror is ridiculously cliched. It's ridiculously conventional. Um, And yet you can take a bunch of horror conventions, and that's what this film does, and you mash them up in a new way and it, it crafts a, a, a new thing, a new entity. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, so when, when Jay looks out the window at the college, the first time it's this, one of these 360 degree shots, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, which in the film tend to establish that there's nothing out there in this particular case. When it first, when the camera first goes all the way around, there are no threats. And then Jay looks out the window and she kind of, you know, we, we, we see her look out at something and then the camera shows us uh, the quad or the, the green belt or whatever we want to call whatever's outside her window. And there in the distance, uh, we see an anomaly because here's, here's great mise-en-scene for you. Every one of the students is wearing something dark. So they're all wearing dark clothing. And then the entity is wearing all white. 
boom, right away our eye gets drawn to it. And so we see, we see. And this little bit of shuffle movement also helps us to, in, in what, what uh, we call eye tracing, to see where it is. But I mean, the, the fact that it's in, in center frame really helps us as well. So it starts to approach. And it's um, at this point that we can talk about uh, the third of Sipos' categories, which is the human psyche's dark side. That this movie utilizes a number of conventions from the slasher film. That the that the you know when we when we have the the victim who is going to be stalked, the slasher just keeps coming, right? And usually picks off all your friends in the meantime. Um, that's one of the ways in which it follows is different. But there is a sort of there are a number of slasher movie conventions that this film plays with, um, and certainly skirts around. I think there's there's no way you know that people who have watched a lot of slasher movies, um, which involve sexuality and the whole you know, once you have sex, then you get killed. Um, or to just watch, even just watch Scream two movies ago and then watch It Follows, there's definitely a conversation going back and forth between um, the entity as not quite slasher. It's it's an ersatz slash slasher, but it is sort of, it, it's going to relentlessly come after you until it picks off uh, you and in, in, in this case, anyone that you sleep with. Um, and then uh, as, uh, you know, um, as the as the shot comes closer, we have, we get a better idea of what the entity looks like, and in this case, it's just an old lady. Um, but she's just she has no there's no affect like she does not have an expression on her face per se, and she's just slowly coming towards the window, slowly coming towards the camera, slowly coming towards us, uh, slowly coming towards Jay. And that slow shuffle, uh, Joshua Grimm identifies as uh, this film's heavy borrowing from zombie movies. So now the entity is not only uh, not only has features that we would say are borrowed from uh, slasher movies, but now we have the zombie as well. It, it you know um, slow moving. Uh, it's clever, like it can it can reason things out in a way that a zombie can't. But it's not, you know, it's the it's the classic Romero zombie. It's it comes very slowly, and the fact that it always manifests. Speaking of Romero zombies, as the neighbors, as it were, it's going to be somebody you know, right? Like it, sometimes it's strangers, sometimes it's just blending in. Um, but most of the, there are a number of times in which it's going to look like someone you know, and so the monster here is not the uh, utter. Um, cosmic horror of the thing. It's not the, uh, you know, demonic girl of either the exorcist or the ring. Um, it's just, it looks very human, but, um, there's, there's no affect and it's just slowly coming towards you. So zombie, a little bit, a little bit of Romero zombie, uh, clicking around here and that's you know the monsters of nature and science because ultimately Romero zombies were creatures of um, nature and science not uh, not the supernatural um, but uh, the, uh, the 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 entity also has aspects of the supernatural if for no other reason then we probably are feeling a really really strong echo resonance from the ring that this is a curse that you can pass along and you don't even have to have access to uh, a video machine you just need to get it on and 
so there's that supernatural aspect of it. I mean, somebody could say, well, maybe it's something that's in the bloodstream or something like that, but the film doesn't play with it in this way. No one ever goes to see a mad scientist or any kind of a scientist to find out, you know, why this is happening. It just does. It just happens. And we also see this in the way that, um, in the scene when, when Jay has left class, she's out in the halls and the entity comes around the corner and walks between these two uh, women and Jay says hello and the young women say hello in return in a sort of bemused kind of hi what what's your thing you know what's your deal we realize that they can't see the entity that only Jay can and and, and it has that element of the supernatural to it I mean just the amount of disbelief on the part of Jay's friends uh, you know initially and then ongoing with Greg it, demonstrates that it has that sort of aspect of the supernatural. And so, you know, we, but, but what I think this all rolls down to is what is it? And we don't know. And the film is never going to tell us. And I think that's one of the great things about It Follows, uh, that, that we never learn what it is. We don't even really know what its weaknesses are. By the end of the film, we're not even sure if it's dead. Uh, and so that combination of all those monstrous elements, I think, really brings us something fabulously new. But it's born out of the conventions of the very genre that it's operating within. And, and it's one of the reasons that I love Grimm's book so much. Um, he deals at length, uh, you know, various various points with the questions surrounding the film's use of motifs, um, sexual motifs. But he doesn't go, okay, well now we're going to, we're just going to, we're going to rest in there and we're going to really deal, we're going to just deal with that in some sort of psychoanalytic way, he, he goes, no, wait a second. There's, there are other things we need to pay attention to, to really understand how this film scares us. Because I think a really meaningful film can haunt us, to be sure. But I, I, there are movies that haunt me that aren't horror movies, right? Like when I see a movie uh, about, about um, genocide, like Hotel Rwanda, it haunts me. Movies like Blood Diamond haunt me. Their meaning haunts me. And a, and a film like it follows with its surplus of meaning. That haunts me a little bit too. And, and I, I just realized in saying surplus of meaning, I had sort of a flashback to working with Bride of Frankenstein so many, many moons ago now. And remembering, you know, what, what uh, I'm going to have to get the citation here, uh, what Alberto uh, Manguel says about that. Uh, about Bride of Frankenstein, he said that it was it was a it had a surplus of meaning and it was in search of a, a a certain significance. But but you might remember that we said okay, well yeah, this film deals with all of these things, but is it just about any one of those, or is it utilizing those to enrich its overall experience? And I think it follows as one of those movies that does that same sort of thing. But what scares us? Like meaning can haunt us, but meaning in my estimation, rarely really scares us. It's what David Robert Mitchell and his crew do with film that scares us ultimately. These 360 degree shots, one of the, the first, you know, one of the first shot of the film is a 360 degree shot. Um, the prologue of the film, by the way, oh, and let's remember, how many times have we had prologues this semester? How many films? Go back through it. Scream, The Ring, The Thing, right? Exorcist, a lot of these movies have prologues. Ultimately, I think even we could say that Night of the Living Dead sort of has a prologue to it. A lot of these movies have these set up prologues, modern horror films in particular. Um, 
it's not a all horror films have prologues, but a lot of horror films do, and they and it tends to set up. Um, you know, how bad things are going to get and you can have somebody get killed and then you can have someone try to solve their murder or you can just establish for the audience uh, just how monstrous whatever it is. And I think that's that's mostly the purpose of this particular prologue. Interestingly, like a good overture, this prologue also sets up a number of the film techniques that the movie is going to employ throughout to keep us on the edge of our seats, to keep us in a tension position of dread and terror, dread and terror, with the odd moment of cinematic shock. The film opens as this 360-degree shot, you know, pans to the right, and we see a young woman come running out of the house dressed in nightwear, some sort of sleepwear. It's like shorts and a, and a, and a top, um, and, uh, and she's got high heels on. And it's, it's such a jarring image. I, somebody say like, what do you think was the deal with the high heels? I think it's totally David Robert Mitchell going, you know what would be weird? You know what would feel odd is if she was wearing high heels. Because if she comes running out of that house in normal shorts, like sweatshorts and, and some runners, we don't have that same sense of what the hell is going on here. Um, this opening absolutely has and it's not just the music. I mean, the music is brilliant. Um, Disaster Pieces music for this that, that tick, 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 tick uh, thing going on. But visually, the inclusion of the high heels and the sort of satin um, sleepwear really is, it goes, what, what's happened? Is she, was she, is someone chasing her? Uh, Cause it looks like someone is, but we can't see anyone. And you know, the 360 degree shot just keeps rotating around. She's standing in the middle of the street, incidentally, just over a crack in the street, which I think was really, really great as a sort of like, things are off, they're fractured. There, there's something wrong with what's going on. Um, just by, by her position in the frame, like that is really solid blocking. And there's too much that's utterly careful about this film for me to think that that's completely incidental. And then the shot continues to pan around in the same direction as uh, she runs down the street. A neighbor has said, are you okay? Yeah, no, I'm fine. Because what is she going to say? No, there's an invisible entity following me. And if it catches me, it's going to kill me. I, I, we're not even 100% sure that this young woman knows what will happen to her. We just, we don't have enough of her story. Uh, this is just a nightmarish prologue to everything that will follow. She runs along, she goes up to the house, her dad says, hey, what's going on? Can we talk? She goes inside, she stays inside for a little while, and the camera doesn't move. It just lets us sit out on the street. And then she comes running back out, she gets in the car, starts the car, drives away. This use of 360 degree pans um, is something that, uh, that Joshua Grimm also talks about in his book. A number of people have talked about this. Many, many critics, um, people on the, the DVD commentary, it's like a critics round table talk about this. Uh, the use of the 360 degree, uh, pan, which is something that most horror films don't use. Horror films use a number of other, uh, film techniques, but showing everybody everything usually isn't scary. Because you don't want your audience to be able to see where the monster is. Um, the trouble with the entity in It Follows is that we never know if we're looking at the monster or not. So another great use of this is a little later in the film when um, Greg and Jay go to Hugh's old school to try to track him down. And the camera is looking outside at the... Um, you know, the bike racks and these couple kissing, and then it comes inside. So the camera's inside the school as it continues its, its pan to the right again. Um, 
and we see uh, Jay and Greg come down the hall. There's people in the in the distance, and that's another great thing about this movie is how often it's using you know figures in the distance that are are um, out of focus for us. Uh, continues to move around. We see them go up to the front desk to ask about Hugh. The camera keeps moving. So rather than stay on the characters who we are probably more invested with at this point, the camera just keeps moving and it shows us the exterior again. And Grimm is convinced that one of the people in the shot, once the camera is looking out the window, is the entity. And it's an interesting theory. I, I don't know. It's, it would be impossible to ascertain if that's the case. Although that particular figure is in the rearview mirror when Jay and Greg will drive away. But the camera just keeps, it just keeps moving. It does a full, you know, it does its 360 twice in this particular case. And so once it's come all the way around, now it starts to feel like we're doing what all the characters in this film should be doing, that we are, we're looking around. We're like, oh, where is it? Right? And the camera is asking us to become more active than we normally would be because the movie isn't going to play the game of eye tracing for us all the time. It's like, no, we're just going to make this camera spin for a while and you are going to be like, who's the entity in the background there? Really, really smart move. Really, really smart use of, of the camera. And again, no CGI. Just put the camera on a tripod and go around. And then coming back to our prologue, our, uh, our young lady in her, in her high heels, driving away, looking over her shoulder, right? She's in the vehicle and she looks over her shoulder. And so this is where we're really, really sure, um, you know, some, somebody, something is pursuing, but we don't know its nature at this point. So it's an utter mystery, but here's a, here's a camera shot that this movie could, you know, sort of claim as an Olympic event looking over your shoulder and realizing, you know, wondering if it's there or realizing that it is like when Hugh and Jay are in the theater and Hugh goes, that girl in the yellow dress. And Jay says, I don't see a girl in the yellow dress. And we realize, Ooh, Ooh. And we don't, we don't know enough at this point, but we're like, good. You know, it's kind of like that. Something's wrong. Something's off. And then he wants to leave the theater. Right. Uh, Jay herself in the college when the old lady is, is uh, the entity as old lady is, is coming after her, looking over your shoulder, looking over your shoulder. That's what this is over and over again. So this prologue sets up a number of, you know, film moves, shots, positions, approaches that this movie is going to use over and over and over again, like the wide shot. Horror movies love to be in real close. And there is a lot of close up in this film. There are also a number of really huge wide shots, beautiful wide shots too. Like, I mean, really well filmed. This is a, this is a beautifully filmed movie. Um, the shot of the woman on the beach here at the, in the prologue is fantastic because the, she's front lit by what appears to be the headlights of the car. Uh, although that is definitely boosted by some other lights. <laughs> um, and then she's backlit. There's something, there's a light right behind her that makes her glow just a little bit so that our eye can pick her out uh, against the darkness of, uh, of the lake behind her. But it's, it's great big, great big wide shot and wide shots become a little terrifying later in the film. We, they generate dread because at any moment somebody could come into the, they could come into the frame, just out of frame, it'd be like, ooh, peek in and you're like, there, oh no, run, you know, um, so those wide shots, and in some ways the wide shot establishes that they're okay, but in other cases the wide shot just establishes 
um, you know, that we don't know what's going to walk into the shot. Like when Jay is first in the wheelchair and then Hugh comes into the shot. And it's a bizarre moment in the film because we've, I think we assume, I assumed anyway, Hugh is, is somebody terrible. I was utterly confused at this point in the movie because Hugh's walking around in the background of this big wide shot. And even once it comes in for a medium wide shot, he's still just walking around in the background. If he's a villain, shouldn't he be... I mean, he is a villain. There's no way around it. But if if he is the villain, if he is the problem, then what's he doing back then? So it's, it's this great use of the camera throughout the film to establish these things. But these beautiful wide shots that show us the ruination of these areas around Detroit where the film was shot, um, the sort of squalor of uh, these locations... Uh, underscoring, emphasizing, I think, some of those, uh, that these very locations become motifs of that idea of the film potentially being about growing old and uh, our mortality, right? That that there's, that we get old and destitute and things fall apart, right? Uh, The the space that they face off with the entity uh, with at the very end of the film. I mean, the first time that we see it, we see it in this great, great wide shot. And so the movie sets these techniques up very early on. And then also the moment when the young woman looks towards her car and doesn't see a thing. She is horrified. The camera changes position and we're looking and going, where is it? 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 And we don't see it. And then the very next shot, her dead on the beach with her leg wrenched into this awful position uh this one moment i think of sort of really uh intensely direct horror that the that the film engages um to set up you know what could happen so that later on i think the one two of that not being able to see the entity and then seeing what the entity can do sets up the scene on the beach when they're out at greg's lake house Um, and they're all sitting around and the camera makes sure that we know where everybody is. It's like, okay, there's Jay. And you know, it it gives us enough of the background. And that's one of the other things about this is that we, we, we rarely are so close to the, the, um, the subject that we can't see out to the margins because we, we, as the audience need to do that. The, The movie generates dread by doing that. And so, you know, but, it, but once we see where they are, we establish, Oh, Oh, no entity. Okay. That's good. And then cut over to Kelly, uh, Jay's sister and no entity there. She's fine. Okay, good. Let's take a look at Greg, no entity in the background. Fine. Uh, let's cut back to Jay. Oh, Hey, look, there's Yara in the background. She's coming to the beach too, but oof. The way she's walking, we're probably like, is, is, no, 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 that's Yara. And then David Robert Mitchell does this wonderful, wonderful move where he cuts back to Paul because there's an earlier shot of Paul. And we see Paul in the foreground. And who do we see in the background paddling around in a dinghy or a little, uh, a little flotation device? Yara. And right then the audience knows, the audience knows. They're like, oh no, that's not Yara that's walking out of, you know, walking up behind Jay. That's the entity such a great such a great scene and again you just think about the simplicity of this no prosthetic makeup no cgi utterly utterly horrifying and it's in broad daylight 
And, we're, and it's not even like a, it's not even a Samara thing. It's not a, you know, like her hair is a little in front of her face, but she's like, oh, I'll draggle down in front. And she's, you know, her fingernails are ripped off and she's flickering uh, like a vintage movie. It's just regular person coming up behind you. But we're like, oh God, right? It's terrifying. So when, when, when Jay's hair lifts, we're like, oh, this is bad. This is all kind of bad. And we're, we've been set up for this absence of the creature, this invisibility thing with that shot in the prologue. So as I say, I think the prologue sets up so much of the film and gets us ready to really understand how the rest of it is going to work. But it's a movie that utilizes very banal, very mundane approaches to generate its dread and terror. And I think that that underscores why we can, even if, even if you know, we didn't like it, we have to at least admit that it is a well-crafted film. And it is how, ultimately, it generates the scares, the fear. So you can have all the meaning in the world that you want, but if the film isn't technically good, it's not a great film. It's just a meaningful one. And maybe it's not even all that meaningful in the end. It's just that the ideas that they're playing with are meaningful. When, you know, because this movie will take moments like Jay looking towards the door, and I mean, that's sort of, a, that's, that's, a, that's a classic sort of horror thing, right? Looking towards the door and who's going to come through it. But it's the way in which it's set up, right? Just the sound of somebody walking down the hall. And there's nothing particularly scary about it. But the way that it's set up in this film certainly makes it so. And it's not until we see the nurse pass by uh, in, this, in this scene in the hospital that we understand that everything is really actually okay. All of these moves set us up for the end of the film. I mean, if the, if the prologue is an overture, then we come to the end and we get, you know, this resolution of the ways in which the film has developed its spaces of, not necessarily its themes, although I think that there is still thematic resonance at this point. Because we get a shot uh, that looks down this, down the street. There's so many, I could, I could catalog those too. Shots just looking down a street or the, you know, from the nose of the vehicle driving down a street. And I think one of the reasons that David Robert Mitchell chose these spaces isn't just because this is where he grew up, although it was, um, but also because it's not claustrophobic. It's pretty wide open. These these suburban spaces and even the uh, destitute ruined spaces as they cross over into Eight Mile are are open enough that you would be able to see somebody walking towards you. And so you, because if you, if you put this in a claustrophobic space, if you put this in like some downtown area, there'd be too many people in the frame to make it scary, but you just have a few pedestrians on a street like this and now it can become scary. Now, any one of those could be the entity. So you get these great shots of just looking down the street and there's a figure in the distance and we don't quite know who it is. And then we see Jay and Paul walking together hand in hand. And the camera shows us what's behind them. And currently it's nothing. And then the camera shows, and then, and then we're following. It's us. And we've finally gotten close to that figure in the distance. It's somebody raking their leaves. It's very clearly not an entity, not a problem. Uh, the music is rel relatively serene. We get a close-up shot of them holding hands. And we ought to pay attention to this because, again, you know, like we wouldn't want to come away from this film and say this movie is an indictment of teenage sex because Paul and Jay have had sex 
and they seem to be relatively happy. Although I know that there are some readings where, you know, it's sort of like, well, Jay just settled and they go through this whole thing of, of you know, what this means to, for her to have just settled for having sex with Paul. And I'm like, wow, you know, that feels like that movie read you, not that you're reading that movie at that point. That feels like a lot of uh, really subjective p- uh, positioning. But um, then we get this next shot and we can see a figure in the background and some one or something is following. But the music doesn't go at that point. It just sort of stays the same. And then once again, I bring us back to a theme that we talked about earlier, which was mortality. Because what precedes this in the movie? It's this moment in Yara's hospital room where she is happily munching away on food. And gosh, you just got to love Yara as a character. If this is a coming-of-age movie, Yara has not yet come of age. Everybody else is growing up. Yara's still snoozing in the car with chips all over the place. She's, you know, farting on the couch. She's reading Dostoevsky, which is bananas. And and that's why I want to pay attention to it. Because if you have this seemingly childlike character reading Dostoevsky, I ought to, I ought to sit up and take notice. And the passage as she reads from Dostoevsky is about not knowing when your time will come, but that once it happens, you will no longer be you, that you will have lost yourself. It will be over. And so there is a reading of this film that doesn't just, you know, it doesn't say, well, the entity is some form of curse, uh, this STD sort of concept, but rather that the entity is perhaps emblematic of our mortality, of the very thing that we go through life with it stalking us, the one, you know, the, the great certainties about life, death and taxes. Um, and you, you look at the earlier shot of the film when Paul comes over right before he hatches his ridiculously Scooby-Doo plan to deal with the entity. Um, he, he looks around the room where Jay and uh, Kelly and Yara are holed up and it's like, is this, I don't think this is actually what's going through the character's head at that point, but what was going through mind is, mine is, that's not living. That's not living. Like, if you have to stay, um, hold up behind, you know, under siege, as it were, from this thing, uh, then, then it's already over. You know, you're not living your life. And so that last shot that positions us behind Jay and Paul for many people, they're like, well, the entity's right on their tail. And maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But isn't it on all our tails then, right? If if this reading, I wouldn't want to say is the reading, but I think it's part of how um, we, it's it's a reading, I think, of the ending that is, is, is satisfying, at least to me. Um, but it's done, again, not just through the insertion of motifs that generate theme, but also... Formal film moves, camera work, editing, and I have to say performances. Some absolutely lovely performances in this film that sell uh, the the threat of the monster. Um, but it is these formal elements, these simple formal elements, that are the thing that ultimately generate the scares. Um, so that you know we 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 experience that initial dread and terror of a horror movie. Do the other things haunt us? Potentially potentially. But what scares us the first time around are these other elements. And it's something that I think we need to pay attention to as film critics, as film scholars, is to say what scared me the first time around. We'll absolutely get around to the haunting stuff. And there's lots of people talking about that out there, which is why I feel 
like I needed to. Next week, we're going to look at a film that likely won't haunt us a whole lot. In fact, the, uh, the commentary track for uh, It Follows, um, one of the critics said, uh, you know, you have films that are replete with meaning or something like that, like It Follows. And then you have films like Cabin in the Woods. And it was, it was just this total, di- total diss, like, well, Cabin in the Woods is an utterly meaningless film, but Cabin in the Woods is also an absolutely fabulous horror movie because it can scare us even as it makes us laugh. So next week we come to the end of our journey as we venture out into the to the woods for one more stop at that rickety old cabin where we know there will be some monsters waiting waiting for us. See you then. 